Welcome to the Inner Ray Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss how relationships are the most meaningful part of life. Join us every week to hear inspiring stories of people living through their inner ray. We invite you to find the radiant, authentic energy that lives inside you to make your life and relationships easier. Hey, everyone. We're really excited about today's episode. Today, we're going to be talking about our founder, Aaron, um, Aaron's story. Um, I'm Katie, and I'm a holistic relationship coach. And I'm Aaron, the founder of Inner Ray. Let's dive in. All right, Aaron, you are one of the most impressive, wonderful people I have ever met. And when we got reunited, we spent about four or five hours just catching up on our lives and getting to share our our authentic stories. And so I'm so excited today to get to ask you some questions so that you can share with the audience where you've come from and how you've become such a living example of what radiant, authentic energy looks like in the world. So mm. to start, I want to know what it was like to be a little air bear as a child. What were you like? Oh, trip down memory lane. Here we go. <laughs> so yeah, I can paint this picture pretty, pretty clearly. Um, I was a very serious child. Um, and while that like is cute and funny and people often called me precocious and um, adults would tell me that talking to me or spending time with me was like being with an adult. Um, many of you listening and what I've come to find is that was definitely a trauma response. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I was the oldest child. I grew up in a home that had, you know, like so many homes, a lot of dysfunction and I I've done a lot of work around my family. So if you're listening and you haven't done that work, just know that this is not how I used to tell the story. (laughs) But this is how I tell the story today, having um, processed and grieved and released a lot of pain and trauma Mm -hmm. around the part of the story I'm going to share. But um, so if it sounds flippant or um, not charged, it's just because I've done a lot of work Mm -hmm. to release the energy around this part of my story. So with that caveat, I'll just dive in. Um, My dad struggled with alcoholism, uh, sex addiction. He had, uh, lots of affairs and, and affairs with women who were close to our family. So Mm -hmm. it was pretty disruptive because we would have these aunts or these best friends of my mom's, and then they would just be gone. Um, I was born in Los Angeles and, um, Just to paint a little picture, I was born in the 80s in Los Angeles. The Rodney King riots happened while I was a kid, like in my neighborhood. Um, So my home was filled with lots of partying. One of the taglines in my childhood home, like if I, you know, we can like think of, oh, this is a tagline for the, um, you know, Netflix movie about my childhood would be um, interesting over safe. Mm. So um because of that, as you can imagine, if the picture I just painted, um, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, I, I have a younger brother. He's 14 months younger than me. Mm. We may or may not talk about him, but 
the tagline of interesting over safe produced a very, very serious little girl that, um, you know, in order to feel safe, had to be the adult in the home. And Mm -hmm. again, I love my parents. I think that they are um, brilliant, interesting, good-hearted people who were living their best lives (laughs) and having children didn't change that for them. Um, Sorry, just got distracted. Something fell in my house, probably one of my pets. (laughs) Um, So or maybe that was the spirit of my grandma yeah. <laughs> coming to be like, don't talk about that. Anyway, <laughs> woo, it kind of scared me. Um, Whoa, interesting timing. And anyway, thanks, grandma. Yeah. Um, I'm very, very close <laughs> to my grandma and she died in 2020. So it's mm. possible that she was Whoa. like interjecting there. So anyway, um, I was a very serious child. In fact, one of my nicknames in preschool was Granny. <laughs> because I- <laughs> I would like stop kids on in the playground and be like, oh, you need to tie your shoe or don't run so fast or, you know, whatever. Um, and I also had this um, resistance or inability to express myself creatively. So everything mm. was about information, knowledge, structure, rules, um, and you know, maybe we'll have a whole episode at some point about the second chakra and like how that's related to the kind of trauma I experienced. Um, but so I was very serious. I was very structured. I was stubborn. I was always right, (laughs) which I don't know how a child could know everything, but in me, there was also this deep sense of shame that I carried Mm. everywhere. And there's an acronym for shame that really applies to my experience as a child, which is should have already mastered everything. Um, if I did not know something, it was an automatic shame response. Um, and I would try to hide it from you. Um, so that was a big piece of who I was as a child. Another big piece was that my parents always had NPR on in every room. And I've come to find out that my dad has some ringing in his ears from his younger days of being in a rock band and whatever. Mm. Um, but I remember being like, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old and hearing this story on NPR, you know, they always tell these like stories of, you know, people across the globe. And Mm -hmm. I think it was these children maybe in Serbia or Bosnia. I don't remember where, where they were because I was too young to understand context. I think the first Bush was president. And um, I just remember being this little kid and being like, I'm going to grow up and help these people. Like Mm. I walked around with the weight of the world on my shoulders at all times. Mm. Um, And I also remember fantasizing what it would be like to not have all that pressure all the time. Mm. Um, Which when we talk about my teenage years makes that part make a little (laughs) more sense. Um, So yeah, I was very academically inclined. I got a lot of, um, validation and nurturing from teachers. My second grade teacher was Anne Ifekinigwe. I remember because I was really proud of proud of myself. She had us all like memorize how to spell her name. She was um, ethnically from Nigeria. Wow. And um, she told my parents that I was going to be a scientist. <gasps> and um, 
I really took that on. And those of you who know me or who will know me at the end of this podcast know I did go on to become a scientist. So um, that part of me, that need to control the environment, to measure outcomes, Mm -hmm. that was instilled in me very young. And it was absolutely for survival. Mm -hmm. Um, On the more kind of positive side, I loved music. Music was always a huge um, escape for me. Um, or I would, I would say a refuge more than an escape. Um, but of course my favorite music back then was, uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes, uh, uh-huh. Sam Cooke, uh, mm-hmm. Janet Jackson, mm-hmm. Madonna. Um, my parents really let, so my dad's British and my mom's Jewish and from Milwaukee. And so they were very much of the rock and roll generation. Um, but there was always a lot of reggae playing, but for me that like Motown music, I mean, little Mm -hmm. did I know I was going to be a little love addict in training, but, um, that Motown music just really, really captured me. Mm. Um, and I resonated with it. I listened to the lyrics now and I'm like, wow, (laughs) so interesting that I was so drawn to this music. Yeah. So anyway, does does that paint a picture of me as a child? Oh yeah, I got a I got a clear picture of little Air Bear. Um, I'm curious what then that transition was like from little child into teenage, teenage Aaron, and yeah. what are some of the things that came up for you, and how did you, how did you learn to deal with those things as they arose? So. I think what is interesting about my story, and I've seen this with a lot of my clients, is I moved when I was nine and a half, almost Mm. 10. I moved from central Los Angeles, where I was the only white girl in my grade in elementary school. Like there were some other people with like white or European skin, but I was like the only traditionally like completely white girl Mm. in my um, public school. Um, And then I moved to Eastern Kentucky, (laughs) uh, where... The culture was very different. We moved to Mays Lick, M-A-Y apostrophe S, new word, L-I-C-K, Mays Lick, Kentucky. You can look it up. Um, very small town, about 20 minutes from the actual city, which was a very small city called Maysville. Um, and I bring that up because I that is when my adolescent self developed. Um because even though for many people it is more chronologically like 13 years old my teenage self had to develop a lot earlier because I went as, as much as like my childhood was dangerous and I developed this like need to be adult-like. Um, there were people in my life when I was a little girl in LA who really cared about me. Like my godmother was a consistent force. There were neighbors, there were friends, there were the parents of my friends who really looked out for me, nurtured me in ways that my mom and dad were not available for. We had nannies that cared about us. So there was this um, loving force in my life when we lived in LA, despite mm. all the craziness. When we moved to Kentucky, those were the dark years. Mm. So um, my mom was depressed because she had left an environment where all her friends were. My dad's drinking had actually escalated. So it it was like a classic tale of an alcoholic where, oh, let's do a geographical cure But really what we've done is isolated the family Mm -hmm. system from the support. And, you know, as you can imagine in Eastern Kentucky, a British alcoholic, a Jewish 
mother, which by the way, my parents are international gemstone dealers. So they did not fit into the culture of Eastern Kentucky. So you take our family out of LA, put us in this like almost foreign country, like third world. I don't mean third world, like Kentucky is bad, but it's a very poor state. Mm-hmm. Um, the running commentary in my school was they that people like the adults thought my parents were drug dealers because we weren't allowed to talk about what we did. That was like our conditioning from being in Los Angeles. Mm. Like don't tell people you're gemstone dealers. It could make you a target of a robbery. But what they figured out later is they had to tell people in Kentucky what they did. Otherwise the assumptions were worse. Right. right. Like we're mafia, we're drug dealers, we're this, we're that. And so um, we moved to this like very different environment and um you know, I didn't have a church that I went to. I didn't have cousins. I didn't, I honestly couldn't even understand the dialect or the right. the accents. Um, so I developed this very brazen, um, angry, aggressive, um, skillful chameleon teenager self. And, um, you know, she was popular. She was, um, incredibly good at school. She knew how to change her personality based on who was in the room. Mm. Um, by the time I was 17, I think I had like four or five distinct personas that I would shuffle through Mm. so much so that at my high school graduation party, I like had a, a intellectual, like glitch and I invited all these people and they all showed up and I realized that like they all knew a different version of me and I Mm. literally had a meltdown and like got super wasted and passed out at my own party because Mm. I could not handle the fact that I had these four or five personas I was trying to manage right um so yeah I started doing drugs and uh drinking alcohol around 11 um 10 11 probably becoming an every weekend thing by 12. Um, it, and more regularly after that, I, it never became something like I had this commitment to academics that, um, pretty much I had a commitment in middle school. I, I asked my parents, I said, if I get straight A's, can I go to college anywhere I want? Mm. And they made me an agreement. They were like, absolutely. We'll make it happen anywhere you want to go, anywhere you get into no matter what the cost will make it happen. And so um, I refrained from doing drugs or drinking actually during school hours or in any setting that could compromise my ability to get into a good college. Mm. So I'm what I would call a high functioning addict um, or someone that leans towards over control versus under control um, when it comes to you know, medicating, uh, how I'm feeling. Mm. So yeah. So that was my teenage self, um, highly over-controlled eating disorder, uh, addiction definitely had a lot of issues with attachment to men and romantic relationships, always in a relationship with someone very unavailable or in a fantasy relationship with someone very unavailable Um, So even though I was really well-liked and I would even say in the popular circles, I hated myself 
Mm. And I hated my body. I hated everything about me. Mm. Um, I knew that there were things about me that people liked. Like I could see that and I could see that they were valuable, but I actually still hated myself. Mm. Just want to like breathe into that. I mean, there, there's so many things that I could go into that I have questions <laughs> about that I feel it like could be so impactful for the audience to hear about. And I think the thing that stands out to me the most that relates to inner Ray is, I mean, I'm going to ask you about how we getting, getting into your adulthood, but I think before that, what really stood out to me was the four or five personas you were managing. Mm -hmm. And then this, this piece of the story of you, you hating everything about yourself. And, And what I'm hearing is and and the disconnect with like your inner ray it's like you weren't hating your inner ray that inner ray was allowing you to survive but you were hating these parts of yourself that you had to create to cover and protect this brilliant wise inner radiance that didn't quite know how to shine um and and feel safe doing that and so i'm curious if along along your way i mean you're very in tune if there was parts of you that knew that 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 was going on um, or if it felt super buried inside of you. And, and if so, then how these patterns continue to play out into your adulthood. Yeah. I wish I could say that I had any self-awareness during those years. I I don't think that I did, honestly. Mm. Um, I was highly, highly dissociated and I, I can have compassion for why, I mean, we don't have to go into it in depth, but I was a child sexual abuse survivor. And, Mm. um, you know, my, my childhood was not safe. I have, I witnessed some very dangerous things. So I developed the skill of disassociation. And so Mm -hmm. I was pretty detached. I mean, you have to be pretty disassociated to have an eating disorder, to be honest, because that requires, you know, ignoring all of your bodily signals. Right. I was just going to say, can you just for, for people listening, when I first heard dissociation, I was like, oh, wow, I've been doing that my whole life. Can you just for for listeners give a little bit of idea of like what dissociation is so we understand and then continue? So I'm just going to share with you the moment I understood what it was, because Perfect. of course, there's the clinical definition, which I right. won't get into. But mm-hmm. I remember hearing a story um, in a support group I was in, and they described it as um, you're going about your day. And for whatever reason, you like hit pause and then you have to keep going about your day and then you end and then you hit play and then you go back to yourself. And, and I wish I could say it was that controlled, but when I was learning about disassociation at the time I was in grad school and I was like, Oh, I don't, I, that's a problem that I do that. Like it didn't even occur to me because that's just how I lived Um, Mm -hmm. like leaving my body was the first option in most Mm -hmm. situations. And I can now reflexively look back and say, well, I learned that from being sexually abused. And, um, you know, when, when we're having something horrifying happen to us and our brains don't, and our bodies don't have an escape or a way to understand it or compute it, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a couple ways to deal with that, but most children 
disassociate in that moment. And they are able to kind of take their consciousness and float out of their bodies. And so that what is happening to their bodies, they can create some distance from because it's too Mm -hmm. painful. So that's how I would describe disassociation. Yeah, that's should be helpful. Now, now, play (laughs) oh yeah let's return let's return (laughs) (sighs) i forgot what we were talking about we were talking about getting into getting into adulthood and how you you started to learn to dissociate so um fast forward i'll just tell the quick version of this story i got into 12 colleges got full rides at all of them i picked the one that was the furthest away Mm -hmm. um ironically it was a women's college (laughs) which the reason that's ironic is I did not like girls or women mm-hmm. very much. Um, but I went to a women's college and I proceeded to take all of these personas and uh, literally feed them speed. Cause at mm-hmm. that point um, my alcoholism had progressed enough that I needed to use pharmaceuticals to manage the alcoholism, to manage my high functioning right. academic self. Right. And so in college I was, um, I ended up pursuing a high honors degree in neuroscience and chemistry, which basically means I was doing research in a research lab, actually published a first um, author paper, if you're familiar with research, um, Mm -hmm. what that means. But um, I published a couple papers, I wrote a thesis, um, all of that while being probably one of the bigger, bigger partiers in my circles. I used to say I had like my Tuesday drinking friends, my Wednesday drinking friends, my Thursday drinking friends, because I could never let anybody know just how much I was drinking. So Mm. I, that was that persona piece that I continued. And then I had to use, you know, um, downers or benzos to sleep. And then I had to use uppers, mostly uh, pharmaceutical grade, not, I wasn't at I wasn't at the time using cocaine or meth or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that I never did any of that. But at that time, I was using, you know, classic college drugs, um, Adderall, Dex, those things to just keep myself going um, to the point that there was a semester where I'd gotten so behind from partying that I spent two weeks awake on uh, pharmaceutical speed (laughs) in order to complete my assignments. And I was hallucinating at the end, everything was like purple and sideways. So that is how I adapted to college. And Mm. I got pretty good grades. I graduated with high honors. Oh, by the way, I also was a swimmer for three years. I swam. Um, I was, you know, the head of several organizations. I had a social life. Um, but the uniting thread is that I, did not know how to maintain and create healthy uh, relationships with people, not just Mm -hmm. romantic friendships, uh, relationships with professors, um, relationships with my family, that, that part of my life was pretty bleak. Mm. And I feel like, I mean, this goes back to the personas, right? When we're not listening to that deep inner, inner voice, it's hard to, maintain relationships with those around us because that relationship with ourself is seems very far buried wow i mean you literally were doing it all and and excelling in in some degree but also what i'm hearing is like the stress on your body on your mind and on your spirit well 
And the next chapter is so interesting because you hear that and you would think, oh, then you went on to do blah, blah, blah. No, what I did with that is I graduated. And like so many of us who had no boundaries growing up, I was too terrified to go into the world. So Mm -hmm. here I was, I graduated. I was like, what's the next structured thing that I can do? And I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So I moved back home with my parents. My dad at that point had found sobriety. Um, My parents were in couples therapy. Um, It seemed like my family was reconciling and healing and I was just getting started. So Mm. I moved back home. Uh, That didn't work out well. All of a sudden I went from being the hero to the scapegoat and everything, you know, everything got blamed on me because, well, Mm. I was pretty insane at that time. Um, So I did what I knew to do, which was to find a boyfriend and move Mm. in with him. And I actually, for a brief period, stopped drinking to make that relationship work and kind of took on that severe codependent role. Mm. Um, But that relationship went down in flames uh, when I started drinking again. And um, at that point, I remember looking around my life going, I literally did the exact opposite thing that I would have thought I would have done, which is move Mm. back into the darkness after I just had these four years of freedom. Um, so at that point, I actually, my parents, the one time they kind of intervened, uh, requested that I go see a psychiatrist and a therapist. And that therapist was like, you need to get the hell out of there. I was Mm. living in Eastern Kentucky. Again, I was bartending. There were, there were just no realistic prospects for the kind of person that I had the potential to become Mm. Um, like there was no one trying to do neuroscience in Maysville, Kentucky. So, you know, not that that's, I didn't even know if that's what I wanted to do. I just knew that I did not really know. I did not know how to evolve in that environment. Mm. Um, So I moved to Nashville. I'll try to speed this story along. I moved to Nashville Mm. and um with like no plan. And my choice to move to Nashville is literally, I took out a map and said to myself, what's far enough away that if I get drunk, I won't drive home to see my ex <laughs> because that was always a concern right. uh, while drunk. And then what is not so far that if I fall on my face and have nowhere to go, I could drive home and right. and live with my parents again, which sounds horrible to me now, but Um, And Nashville was four and a half hours away. I'd never heard of Nashville, Mm. didn't know anything about Tennessee, but I knew that there was a huge university there. So if I wanted to get a doctorate, I could. So I moved to Nashville and within a year, um, I got struck sober. Mm. And within three months of that, I started a PhD. So, (laughs) so can you, can you take us into that, that lightning strike? What, what was that? How did that clarity hit you? How yeah. did, how did you find that? I mean, in array shining. Yeah. I, I would say that I wish that I could um, tell you that I earned that, mm. but this is where I do believe it was divine intervention. Yeah. Um, I had moved to Nashville. I'd been living there for about a year. I had made this commitment to like only drink high class drinks. I wasn't going to do drugs. I was going to, mm-hmm. I was going to be a cool drinker who, you know, wasn't problematic because mm-hmm. I'd kind of gone downhill when I was back in Kentucky, the drugs mm-hmm. had gotten really bad again, mm-hmm. all of that. And I was like, so I don't have a crazy boyfriend. I don't have crazy parents. I'm just living my best life. And well, <laughs> 
that I was still horrifically miserable. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember sitting drinking margaritas with these friends and being like, I don't like any of you. Mm -hmm. I'm so bored. I'm so miserable. And so, um, yeah, getting sober, I literally, I woke up one morning after a horrific night of drinking that I had no rationalization for getting drunk. I'd been trying to not drink. I'd been on a two week break, Mm. gone and gotten wasted, woke up and heard a voice that basically said, um, I was talking to this voice, which is interesting now because I was atheist at the time. So I don't know Mm. what I thought I was talking to myself, I guess. And this voice was like, Hey, um, can you explain to me why, why you did that again? And I was like fighting with the voice and I was like, well, you know, it must've been someone's birthday. And it's like, no, it was no one's birthday. Well, it must've been a holiday. Nope. Nope. The last holiday was a few days ago. So, and, and basically what the voice said back to me is like, you got drunk because you're an alcoholic mm. and you're never going to stop. Mm. So that was, Hey, Annie, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Um, my dog has decided to join. Um, that was the big moment where, where I literally, the voice told me to call AA, which mm. was interesting. Um, so I called 411, talked to someone in central office mm. and by one o'clock that day was in my first meeting oh. and, um, out of respect for the traditions of 12 step, I won't go into it beyond that, but that, that was my big wake up call was sitting in a room with a bunch of regular old drunks <laughs> and listening and going, this is the most real conversation right. I've heard in a long time. Mm. And even though I don't know about this God stuff, like, I don't know about any of that. Um, I know that I feel more connected in this messy truth than I have felt in my um, fun and, you know, party life that I had created mm. for myself. So that was, that was the beginning of me reconnecting to that inner radiance, inner radiant, authentic mm. energy. Such a beautiful story. I mean, it makes me, it got me emotional hearing that because you listening to that voice is courageous and taking that step to go so courageous. And I think this brings us into like what it's like now for you. Um, what, what was it like making that making that choice and how does how 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 was making that choice stayed with you today and every single courageous move you've made so yeah i think what really looking back now struck me about being in in those meetings was that it it was a bunch of people who had no option <laughs> but yeah. to be authentic like mm-hmm. being authentic became their lifeline right and um being able to step into for probably the first time in my life like just full permission to have this community where the more authentic i was the more i was going to heal mm. and that seemed to be the key and and to me like there's a lot of wonderful things that i got out of 12 step again out out of uh, respect for the traditions i'm not going to drop into it a ton um but i'm a big proponent and fan of people um, finding a path to spirituality that works for them Mm. that I happen to get through joining a 12 step group. Right. Um, I kind of say it for me, it was spirituality for dummies. (laughs) (laughs) And so this was the beginning of my journey that I sometimes talk about of 
being an atheist scientist to a modern day mystic that began in the rooms of AA. And um, so fast forward, you know, how did I get from there to here? Um, You know, I did spend the next five years doing research um, as a neuroscientist at a nearby, at a university in Nashville, and I was getting a doctorate. And what I can tell you is that the more that that radiance in me started to wake up, the less I fit into that world. Mm. And the more I became a target um, for people in that world. Mm. Um, And this isn't, I'm not here to talk negatively about scientific research communities or even about that institution. But what my story was that the more I stood in my truth and the more I connected and started to broadcast that radiant authentic self, um, the less I was welcome Mm. in that community. And going back to something we spoke about earlier, because of my highly skilled ability to disassociate, um, the way that I left my doctorate was pretty devastating. Mm. Um, I think often when, when, when I look back on my story, I, I, at times when I look back at my story, I could say, oh, I wish I hadn't put myself through that. And what I know is that I had to, I had to be in enough pain to leave something that was really upon reflection, like, yeah, alcohol and drugs saved my life, Mm -hmm. but the framework of how I survived the reality that I was born into was that I was a scientist. I was going to control my environment. I was going to do experiments to figure out what these universal laws to live by are. And that in order for me to leave the sciences to eventually find myself where I am today, it had to be so incredibly painful because it was, it was the only thing I clung on to. It was the mm. only thing from my childhood that felt safe was right. this idea that I could figure things out, <laughs> that mm. all the answers could come through here. Right. Um, but what the 12 step was teaching me and other um, therapy and other groups that I was in was teaching me is that um, actually, this is actually my favorite quote about the brain that I'll then apply to spirituality. Um, If we, if we could fully understand the brain, right. If we, if we could under, if it was simple enough, that's what it is. If the brain were simple enough for us to understand it, we would be too simple to understand it. And so that under, so the, the further up I got in science and the more I came to find out that we actually have no idea what is actually happening, (laughs) that it's actually quite mystical and quite magical. The more I came to understand that God, the universe, all of that science was just a limited human explanation for the Mm -hmm. unexplainable. Yeah. And I woke up and became this profound mystic (laughs) five years into my doctorate. I mean, it's evolved since then. Totally. But that was the beginning of me 
waking up to the idea that maybe control was not the answer. Mm. Maybe control was actually limiting. And so what that looked like was panic attacks. Mm. Um, you know, my, my eating disorder had come back pretty severely. Um, I was what I would define as orthorexic, anorexic, exercise bulimic. Um, so while I wasn't using drugs or alcohol, I was addicted to this idea that I was, you know, when I would walk into a room, people would say, oh, Aaron Watt is the smartest person I know. And that was one of my drugs of choice was being Mm. this impressive neuroscientist, researcher, smart person who also, by the way, looks perfect and knows exactly how you should eat, exactly how you should exercise, exactly how you should live your life. And if you would just listen to her, your life would be perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Very, very addicting to be that persona. Mm -hmm. Um, And it almost killed me. Mm. So that way of living brought me to my knees. And that to me was probably even more of a, like my inner radiant authentic energy was like, "Mm -mm. Mm. this is not your truth. This is not your truth. And because I've always been a seeker and I've always been like, I got, I got to really get that, that scientist in me, right? It's not a bad thing has always been a seeker Mm -hmm. that if I continue to seek, I would find that what I was doing was limiting. Mm. So quit my PhD. Um, and then I was like, God, what do I do now? Well, I did what pretty much everyone I know and now in long-term recovery has done at some point, which I started working in the mental health and addiction treatment industry. Mm. And um, without dropping too much into that, um, I found myself being really drawn to at first more women and women who were chronically relapsing because of relationship issues. And at the mm-hmm. time I was doing my own work around attachment, um, you know, what, what uh, they call and what I was calling at the time, love addiction. I mm. don't love that phrase anymore. And we have an episode about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at attachment-based issues and relationships and how that contributes to chronic relapsing. Right. And um, I ended up meeting someone who defined themselves as a relational expert. I'm really going quickly through the story here. Yeah. Uh, I became a coach because everyone was telling me, oh, become a therapist, become a therapist. But I've been wounded in academia. So the idea of going back to school, I would rather have like you know, jumped out of a plane vomiting. Like I right. just like no, nothing about like, that. No. <laughs> nothing yeah, about that yeah. kind of feeling at all to me. Yeah. So I became a coach and um, met this woman who was a self-proclaimed expert in relationships. She taught me some really cool things. We co-created a lot of curriculum together and built a coaching company together. I learned that I'm a natural leader. I mean, I think you can hear that in my story, but yeah. I really started to step into the fact that I was a leader and a teacher and a trainer. And um, eventually that partnership came to an end. Um, The end of 2019, I did what I knew to do, which was retreat back into the uh, mental health and addiction treatment space. Got it for the last three years, um, spent time refining, rebuilding, nurturing this vision, which eventually has become an array. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's where I am today. And there's a lot in between, but did, did that get us current? 
that did get us current and I want this to keep going on for hours. Like I have so many questions and I think what would be a really good place to end with or, or lead us into, into a closing is. So you talked about how a lot of your journey was top down mind focused. Mm-hmm. You went from scientist to modern day mystic. Um, how, I mean, the, I, I know from being a coach within this integrated curriculum, it's a beautiful blend of, of accessing the brilliance of our mind, but really seeding in the radiance of our heart and our soul. And I'm, and I'm wondering how, how you blended it to get to this point and, and how that blend plays out in coaching clients and how that feels to you now having this uh, balance between the two, because the war is, is really the challenging part of all of it. So how did you get your, your mind and your heart and your radiance to be on the same page working together versus fighting each other? Mm. Well, what I would say is that for many years, I just led with my mind. Mm. Like, I'm going to be honest that that was always my lead. And that makes sense when you hear my story. And what I would find is I would lead with that. And then, um, I guess it was my radiant authentic energy was kind of whispering Mm -hmm. me to drop in more to my heart. And um, upon application of what I was learning, when I did it from my mind, it helped people. Um, But when, you know, one of the things I noticed was when I was training a lot of these coaches at this other company, um, so many of them, they were all brilliant, but so many mm-hmm. of them had these, mm, I think I the word I want to use is these like never ending abundant heart centers. Mm. And I did not resonate with that. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> um, I was like, man, they have way more to give in that area than I do. And then I would watch them express the curriculum in a way that never occurred to me to be completely honest. Mm. And honestly, it was watching them and then trying it out with my clients. Not that my clients are experiments, but like, honestly, like dropping into, well, what would it be like to be more heart centered in my approach? What would it be like to meditate in a session with my clients? What would it be like to remind people that they are loved by a divine force Mm -hmm. in every session? And so I just started to play around with it. And by working with my clients, and then also me doing my own therapy, me reading books, um, developing friendships with people that are the opposite of me and seeing Mm -hmm. the beauty and the grace and how they carry themselves and how they recover. Um, honestly, it's been a collective effort and mm. the radiant authentic energy in me has been like, Ooh, I like how Katie did that. Oh, I mm. really like how my friend Jessica does that. Or wow. The way my friend Robin expressed that was so different and not a way that I would do it, but how can I 
learn from that and expand on that. So yeah, it was a collective effort. I think me left in a vacuum would have written a textbook Mm. (laughs) and it might've helped some people, but, um, you know, I would say that inner Ray really is an amalgamation of all of the amazing, wonderful heart centered people I've known along the way who have taught me how to drop into my body and my heart and my soul Mm. and therefore take this brilliant way of thinking that would be completely useless if it wasn't also connected to the heart. So yeah, thank you. Anyone who's listening, you know who you are. Thank (sighs) you. Thank you for loving me. Mm. when I did not know, not, not only did I not know how to love myself, I literally didn't know that that kind of love was available. Mm. And the, the people in my life today continue to amaze me at the kind of, mm, let me think how to say it, infinite the infinite, there's no much, there's no such thing as too much love. (laughs) Right. Did not know that. (laughs) Did not know Mm. that, but I get to experience that in my relationships today. It's so beautiful. I mean, there's so many pieces of this that, that speak to the heart of, of the, of the clients that you have, that we have and all of our journeys through listening to that inner radiance, leading us deeper into our relationships, leading us deeper into love. Um, it's so beautiful and it's so inspiring to hear you talk about your story. And I think that the other thing that's really beautiful too, is when someone's speaking from the heart fully authentically, it can't be copied, but that energy can be felt and it leads you and it guides you into your own authenticity. And so you can try on sitting in that heart space and all you have is your own energy to lead you, you know, and, and you, and you find the courage to do so through having inspiring and empowering relationships around you with people who are doing that. And I know from my seat, you're that for me. And it's, it's just beautiful how it all comes background. Um, is there anything else? that you wished that I'd asked that you want to jump into? Is there anything else that you want to share um, before we close out? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that next episode, we dive deeper into a couple of themes, themes that came out to me that I think be really impactful, but curious. Well, I, I think it would bring it really full circle to say that when I um, first started to awaken, right. When Mm -hmm. I came to 12 step, people would say, um, you know, people would tell me they love me or they'd want to hug me. And I was like, don't effing touch me. (laughs) And there's no way you could love me. You don't even know me. Mm. Whereas Mm. today I catch myself, like sometimes I have to hold myself back from telling my clients, Hey, I love you. Right. Like, it's just like, it's so automatic for me now. And and it's, it's authentic, you know, when I say it now. Um, so I guess I just wanted to share that, 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 um, I've come a long way and, Um, I plan to continue to go a long way from here. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I know that you would love to dive into more of my story, but my hope is in our next episode, we're actually going to hear from you and your story. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that throughout this podcast, yes, we'll have guests and, um, 
will speak about topics, but um, I will have an opportunity to share more of my story. And um, also, if you're listening and there was anything in my story that felt curious or interesting to you, give us that feedback and we'll do an episode on it. So thanks for your beautiful questions, Katie. Mm. And um, I'll hand it back to you. All right. Well, everybody, I just want to give Aaron a big virtual <laughs> hug because that was awesome. And um, thank you for sharing all of that with us. It was a privilege to listen and an honor to hold space for you to share your story because the world needs to hear more of these inspiring stories and know that true transformation exists <laughs> and that inner radiance is beyond powerful. So with that, thank y'all for listening. Oh, um, were we going to put in that fun thing that we were going to do? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Go for it. Go for it. Do you have it? <laughs> I do. I do. Okay. All right. So we're always going to ask this question that I'm about to ask Aaron at the end. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. So name someone in the public eye who's broadcasting their inner way and inspiring you to live your most radiant, authentic life. Go. So I think in honor of me telling my story, Mm -hmm. I am going to say that that person is Brene Brown Mm -hmm. because she, like me, was from the academic research world Mm. and she managed to convince a bunch of academics (laughs) to talk about vulnerability Mm. and love and trust and, and all of those things. And, and I, I know that when I read her first book, the gifts of imperfection, it profoundly shifted and changed me. So for today's episode, my answer is the wonderful, amazing, talented Brene Brown. Everybody who's listening, check out Brene Brown if you haven't already. <laughs> oh my, God. my dog is really wanting to participate in this. I don't know if you can hear her. I could hear her a little bit. I love that. The spirit, <laughs> it's, it's coming through. And and she came through in very interesting times in our in our episode today. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's quite special. I was paying attention. All right. So thank you all for listening. See you next week. Yeah. See you next week. Thank you for listening. Our mission is to empower people to live their most radiant, authentic lives. If this sounds exciting to you, join our community by subscribing to our podcast, joining our email newsletter, following us on social media, or sending us a message to find out more. We would love to hear from you. See you next week.